This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast. I'm Bill Kennedy, and our special guest today is Ian Lewis. Hey, and thanks for joining us today. Yeah, no worries. Uh, thanks for uh, getting up early for me. Yeah, tell everybody where you are. I am. Uh, I'm in in Japan. I'm in Tokyo, Japan, or or at least close to Tokyo, Japan. That is one. That's one of the few cities I have on my bucket list to visit. I. I got out of the airport one time because they were transferring us from one airport to the other, something with bad planes. I don't know what happened. So I got out of the airport one time, but it was just a bus, right? So I haven't really seen that city yet. Well, it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a nice place to live, if, uh, though it, it's, it's one of those things that, like, if you, if you kind of know the language and you, like, can maybe deal with like some of the cultural differences, I guess, like it's a, it's a pretty, pretty nice place to live. I think it's, it's really just, there's a lot, like the culture shock can be a lot for, for some folks. But you've been there a long time. I want want to talk about how you got there and all that, but I mean, you've been there for, for years, right? Yeah, I've been there for, or I've been here. Yeah. For, um, let's see, I, I came in 2006. So like that was, uh, that would be like about 16 years ago, 15, 16 years ago. All right. I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. I want to, I kind of want to talk about how that happened. Uh, but before we do that, give everybody like two minutes on what you're doing today. So we can get a sense of where you are today. Sure. Yeah. So like what you know, for work, I'm a, I'm a developer advocate for Google cloud. I work at, uh, in the, you know, developer relations group, uh, and, uh, I focus mostly on kind of container security and most recently on like supply chain security. So like, that's kind of one of the topics that's been, uh, consuming a lot of attention and, uh, thought, uh, recently at Google cloud and elsewhere. And so that's something that I've been focusing on for about the last, I guess, six months or so. Before that, I focused on, you know, kind of container security more broadly. Uh, I did a lot of work on some projects like, like the, uh, the Gvisor project that we had, uh, that we have, um, for, you know, basically making sandbox containers that, uh, where you can, you know, run it, essentially run code that's either untrusted or, you know, otherwise kind of dangerous and you don't want it to like kind of escape the container. Um, or otherwise, you know, take over your infrastructure so you can run it in the sandbox like that. And that was like pretty exciting to open source because like that was a kind of really interesting and important project within Google. Um, it's used in a lot of places like our serverless products and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of involved in a bunch of different like kind of Go related things. Uh, so Gvisor is also is written in Go, and most of the work that I do around containers is written in Go. Like a lot of the the tooling, like Kubernetes, and uh, you know most of the container tooling nowadays is written in Go. And so, like that's kind of the area or the space that I live in right now. I'm glad you're um, 
I, I want to get to this too because there was a position that opened up at Arden and it was a security engineer. And I said to Miguel, I go, Miguel, what does that mean? Like this word security is so generalized in my head. Like, I don't know what that means, right? So at some point, I'd love to have a little bit of a conversation with you since you've been focused on security. You know, like, what does that mean? <laughs> because my brain, I, I, I can't wrap my head around it all the time. I mean, I can, I can I get a sense of, well, we don't want this thing to access the file system. Okay, but it's got to be bigger than that, right? So I, I'd love, when we get near the end, I want to have that conversation. But this podcast is really about kind of learning your journey to, you know, where you are today. And um, one of the, my favorite questions I like to ask, but actually, before I get there, before I get there, uh, real quick, did you go to, did you do your grade schooling in the U U.S. or in Europe or? Yeah. So like, if you want to go back, you know, that far, then yeah, yeah we're going to go back. Far. I'm originally from. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so, yeah, I'm originally kind of from the, um, you know, the DC area. So Washington DC. Uh, that's where I kind of grew up um, in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. And, you know, we did. You know, I did grade schooling all the way up through, through high school in in Maryland, uh, and then went to college. In uh, but wait, 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 don't, don't go too far. Yeah, don't go too far from me. I'm going to interrupt you at times because I don't want to go that far. But what year did you graduate high school? Well, uh, it's going to be embarrassing because I, I, you know, everybody's going to know how old I am. But, uh, you know, I graduated high school in 1999. I, I, I only ask so I can get a sense of how, like, usually about 17 or 18 when you graduate high school, I have a sense of what the tech looks like. So mm -hmm. that, yeah, that's yeah. why I ask. So I get a sense. So I, and. People who listen to the show know I graduated in 87, right? So, so 99 is when you graduated high school. All right. So now my favorite question. Here we go. I got to set the stage there. So I want you to, the first thought, the first absolute thought that pops into your head when I, when you think about that first time you, you saw or worked on a computer, a first moment pops in your head. Like the first thought that I, that I, I guess, like popped in my head was kind of, I guess like you get the, if you get the feeling of like seeing something that you're kind of curious about, like kind of like, that's neat, you know, like, I guess that's the kind of feeling, I suppose. Like you don't get like a, a huge major dopamine hit when you're, when you're playing with computers necessarily, but you kind of get in dribs and drabs, uh, you know? And so that was maybe the feeling that I got like, oh, this is neat. Like, this is kind of interesting. If I do this, it does this and it's predictable, you know? that kind of thing like really maybe appealed to me. And like, that's maybe what the, the feeling that kind of comes to mind when uh, I do, I think about like kind of my early computer days. Do you remember how old you were maybe around that, like that, that first kind of it, real experience you had? Were you in high school, junior high school? Yeah, so I, I did with like use computers like when I was in high school and uh, you know, as, as a lot of people do, like I kind of started with games first uh, and so I played like games. We used to have like a, a Commodore uh, 128 actually, which is most people had like is familiar with the Commodore 64, but like we had a 128, which is kind of the next version. And what you did on 128 was you essentially changed it to 64 mode and you did everything in 64 mode, which is exactly <laughs> what is, you know, so it was like useless that you had a 128, but like, uh, 
Yeah, so we had one of those, and I mostly played games on that. I didn't really do very much programming on that. It wasn't until later that I started actually kind of programming. It was more like I started programming more when I was in high school. Uh, I think we probably had a Commodore when I was in middle school, or we first got it when I was in middle school. But like, it was in high school that I really started to like actually program um, and start writing small uh, kind of applications. Were there classes in high school? Did you get to take? Yeah, so like I had, we did have a class like when I was in a senior in high school that I took, um, and that was like using, you know, the Turbo C plus plus. You know, if you if you've ever used that, uh, that was like uh, back in the day you had like Borland C plus plus, and you had like um, I think there was like some uh, a Microsoft one, or I don't remember what the competitor to Borland was at the time. But Borland was what we used in the uh, in the in the the class that we had in in school, and so we did the kind of normal stuff, you know, make the turtle program like Turtle Paint, or whatever they call it, where you like essentially make a drawing program that draws stuff. Um, so that was interesting, you know, learning about that. I think the most that in that class, like. You know, I was a little bit ahead of other people, so like I tended to like add more to the programs and stuff like that. I wasn't like a lot ahead of other people, but you know, I would kind of spend the extra time like adding new features to the program or whatever that we were given or assigned. Were there other things you were more interested? But were there other things you were more interested in high school? It was was the, the computer was just it was a class where where you're doing music, sports, something else like. Like when you go into high school, what are you, what are your, at some point you start to think about what, what's next, right? Usually based on what you're interested in. So I'm kind of really curious what you were kind of into in high school. Yeah. Like that's, that's interesting. I mean, like I was a little bit interested or like into music. I mean, like we did, I did, you know, I was in the kind of, you know, vocal choir or the, the kind of chorus in, in school. Um, and I did that through college, but, and, you know, for sports, I did like kind of soccer in high school, early high school, but like kind of stopped doing that halfway through and kind of the same for swimming. I wasn't really a sports person per se. It was really like kind of, you know, programming that kind of captured my interest like later in, in high school. But yeah, like that was a, the sing the singing's interesting. The singing's interesting, right? Like, are you? You can't be, especially, in, kind of snuck in that you were doing that in university. I mean, you must be a, a really good singer at this point, right? I mean, some of us can like not not be tone deaf, but yeah, I mean, like I did it through kind of through college. I didn't really do very much after that, like take lessons or anything like that, or or do private in, have some private instruction. So. I kind of mostly gave it up and kind of focused on my career after college, but the like throughout college, yeah, I did I did that and it was you know, that was really interesting and gave me a lot of other types of experiences that I wouldn't have otherwise had, uh for sure. So you like karaoke? So if I if I if I make it to Japan, we're gonna do some uh, I wanna hear I wanna hear Ian's voice now. Well we we definitely <laughs> have to do karaoke because like I mean karaoke is just the thing you have to do in Japan. <laughs> it depends on like what you wanna what kind of karaoke you wanna do. I mean we can we can take a couple of different, you know, methods there, you know, like we can do the kind of 
show off karaoke of like, you know, what, what's your, what's your musical tastes kind of like, or you can, uh, do the, uh, the kind of, uh, performative, more performative version. I just want to have a couple of drinks and laugh while we're all, uh, I mean, you're going to, you're going to be good up there. I'm going to like barely hold my own and somebody else. I'm not going to be the best. I ain't going to be the worst. <laughs> my dad was a musician. You know, I kind of grew up around it. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Like the, I think the, the thing about karaoke is that like, you have to kind of figure out which songs that you're, you can, you can do pretty well. Um, you can do some like kind of experimental ones every once in a while, like that you don't know quite as well, but like, you know, ones that pick some that like match your voice and that you really, that you like to do and do those. And usually like, you know, everybody has like a song or, or a few songs that they can do that like are pretty good. Right. No matter how, what their kind of level is. Right. Like that's something that I kind of like about karaoke. It's make, it's easy to, or it's, everybody has like, like a song that they could do that would be, that would sound good. Right. Like nobody's going to sound terrible. Well, you haven't heard my son saying he's, I think he's completely tone deaf. I, he can't get in, in tune on anything. <laughs> It's it's kind of sad. I, I won't even give him the mic anymore. I'm just no. You you sit. We're done. <laughs> uh, let's get back to high school. So, you're you found computer programming in high school, which is which is pretty cool. Um, outside of the 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 singing and the you know what little sports you were doing. So, as you're getting close to 99 and you're going to graduate. Um, what is kind of in your head for what's what's next after high school? Obviously, we've heard already you went to university. So what were you looking at studying in university? So I think at the time, like, you know, computer science was the thing that I was looking at. So I was like fairly traditional in that sense. But like, you know, at the time, I wasn't really and I probably wouldn't say that I am now like I'm like a kind of go-getter kind of person, right? Like I, at the time I would, uh, you know, maybe a good description of the type of person I was, was like, you know, immature in terms of like emotional intelligence, like, so not immature in the sense of like, you know, you know, my ability to kind of socially interact with people, you know, I cared about other people. I like, you know, uh, I was able to kind of make friends and interact with other people, but I guess like being able to kind of have direction, you know, like form direction in my life and things like that was like a little bit harder. So instead of going to like kind of a large school, like I decided to go to like kind of a smaller school, right? Which is kind of a mistake if you're you're a computer science person, right? Like a larger school is much better in terms of the actual program, right? But I ended up choosing like a really tiny school that was actually kind of smaller in terms of the number of students than my high school kind of went with that in order to kind of build the, build myself up a, a little bit more socially, like learn more like kind of the social type of, you know, develop more socially, I suppose. Was that school in the DC area? That was actually in the, in Virginia. So like it was kind of out in the Appalachian mountains area. So like near Harrisonburg, Virginia, yeah. So like, that's, that's what I did. And I kind of got, kind of got lucky in terms of like the, the, the teacher that I had there or the, the professor that we had there, um, at the time at, 
because like the guy that was doing the computer science, like leading the computer science program there um, was actually kind of a more kind of a person from a more kind of Ivy League type of background. Like he went to Northwestern for undergrad and Stanford for his uh, for his grad school. And, you know, so and he's like this guy like that works at this little tiny college in the middle of nowhere, Virginia. Um, so like that was kind of like a, a little bit lucky to some degree to like get somebody that was like that educated and knowledgeable at the time, you know, just, yeah, yeah, just knowledge, educated, knowledgeable, like had all of the technical like knowledge, right. That I could, uh, that I could get. And, but also that like, so I got like a lot of, or so, at least some of the, the big school kind of ways of thinking and, uh, you know, learning in terms of the computer science education, but also was able to do the small school thing um, and develop more like, you know, socially into a more fully functioning adult, I would say. Was your program, like my, I went to school in SUNY Potsdam and like I went over there in 88, right? I mean, talking state university uh, th at the time they were, they were, I guess, recognized in the SUNY system for computer science, right? Again, small school, maybe, Maybe five thousand kids overall in that in that university, right? And it was a music school my, primarily, too, but in all the musicians. Um, but my what I loved about my education there was it was more programming focused than it was like anything else. Almost every class required us to write code in the beginning, Pascal, and then C, which was great for me because I'm not an academic and I would not have done well if it was pure academic kind of stuff. Um, I'm kind of curious what your program was more about. Was there a lot of programming involved? Was there then, because of the, the person running the department, I, I'm getting a sense that, that maybe there was more uh, academic in theory than hands-on. I'm just curious. Actually not, right? So like that, that was actually the, the school this particular professor was did lean kind of more heavily on the programming aspect of it. Um, so, and I had that particular professor for the first three years, right? So like, so the early classes definitely were more programming focused, right? So we did a lot of C++. Um, I think most of the classes were C++. We did some Java kind of later, more later on, um, but mostly kind of focused on C++ and C for the, the first early classes um, that we did. Um, and, you know, those were kind of like the, the basic, you know, computer science 101 type of here's what a program is, here's how to write a program, here's how to compile it type of stuff, you know, and then some algorithms classes where you do like the kind of sorting and, you know, kind of, yeah, data structures, algorithms, yeah, yeah, yeah. data structures, that type of stuff. And, you know, some of the stuff later was more kind of operating systems, like, you know, kind of more broad kind of theory uh, and some, uh, you know, cal there was a compilers course that I took. Um, but yeah, it was mostly focused on kind of like technical aspects. I wouldn't say it was very focused on theory per se. Do you remember which class you enjoyed the most? Like, I remember, I hate the, you know, I was too immature to go to school at the time I was going to school. I, I was really, I, I hated, I hate, I loved school if I didn't have to go to class, okay? 
I, I feel that like I was not really like a person that was like really interested or or into school. Uh, and I mean, I did well enough in the classes, but like I just I couldn't like I, I definitely didn't get A's in all my classes. I, I just kind of like did what was necessary and like did like the minimum amount of work kind of thing. Um, but yeah, like was in there, terms of like what yeah, was my was favorite there one class? Cl yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I remember the one class I had that I really enjoyed. Like, yeah. So there was one that was like a. Uh, there was one that was called like an independent study for, that I did, um, and that was like not a class per se, but it was it was for credit, right? And so what we did during that was like I essentially picked a project, right, that I would do over the course of the semester. And I would research this project, you know, talk to other people about the project, how to kind of, you know, figure out how to do it. Um, and then kind of build the program, you know, uh, and kind of essentially like write a report about it, you know, towards the end. Right. And so this was, it was a, it was a really interesting course because I could like kind of choose what I wanted to do or what was like kind of interesting to me. And I could choose something that was like going to be challenging. And, you know, I got a lot of like one-on-one -on -one time with the professor, like talking to him because essentially I would meet with him like every, uh, you know, twice a week or something like that and have a, like a full half hour or, or something like that, where I would, I think it was about a half hour where I would like be able to talk to him uh, and have a lot of like kind of high bandwidth conversation. What was the project? What was the project, Ian? What, what was the project you chose? What I did in there was like, was I wanted to create a, uh, an atomic orbital viewer. So like essentially something that would visualize an atomic orbital. So like for a, an electron around a, an atom. So like, uh, so you can, if you're kind of a physics person, you'll know that like, an electron orbit, like if you, as you kind of go out to the bigger kind of atoms that, that exist, right. You start with like hydrogen, right. With like one electron that has a, like one type of orbit. And then you kind of go out to helium that has like two electrons. And that's like, it's, that's in one orbit. And then you get to the next orbit, which is at the, I think it's the third electron. You kind of get another orbit and like each of those orbits has like a completely different kind of shape to it. Um, and the way that that it kind of works is it's like a a cloud essentially like this this electron is there's a probability that it is in any at a particular point you can calculate like essentially the probability that it's going to be there so there's like kind of a probability distribution like in 3d space um and so what you can do is essentially just if you do something really simple, you can just like pick a point of space or something like a random point in space and say like, is there a, what's the chance of an electron being at this point, right? And then you pick like a random number between one and zero and you say like, okay, is it before like greater than that or less than that, right? And if it's like greater than that, like you can put a, put a point there, right? In 3D space. And then you just do that a bunch of times, right? And you get this like visualization of uh, an orbital. Um, and so that's that's kind of the project that I was planning on, that I planned on doing. Um, and 
The tricky bit was really kind of figuring out how to actually come out with, well, there's two things that I wanted to learn. One was the kind of physics part and one was kind of the, the, how do I make a program that's like, first off, like a UI program, because I haven't really done like UI for like, and then the other thing was like, how do you like make a, like a 3D model, right? So that you can rotate uh, and look at. Oh, that seems really complicated stuff to try to do. And I mean, I did something really simple, right? Like I just put points in space and then you can kind of rotate that like in a, in a canvas, right? Like, so like, that's actually like, if you kind of look up how to do that, that's like, it's actually kind of surprisingly easy, like to do it in a very simple way, right? Like the way that I did it at the time was just the very simple way that of taking, you can take a, a specifically crafted vector. So like, that's essentially a, an array that's like, has three points in it or three numbers in it. And you can do array multiplication against a, 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 a 3D point, like an X, Y, and Z. And you do that for like essentially all the points and you can kind of rotate a model, right? Uh, and so you use a slightly different vector, like it's essentially like one, zero, negative one, 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 zero, right? Like there's a bunch of vectors that you can multiply your points against in order to rotate them in different directions, like left and right, up and down. Um, and that's the easiest way to do it, um, is just using vector multiplication. And that's what I did at the time. Um, you can get really complicated and use things like quaternions, uh, like, which is a little bit more, more involved, but is a lot more efficient when it comes down to kind of rotating a lot of points. But like, I didn't really know about that at the time. Yeah, no, that's cool. As you are about to graduate university, right? Sounds like you got a, a, a nice kind of strong foundation on the computer science. Um, here in Virginia, what it, so now we're talking like 2003, I guess, around the time you're going to graduate. What are you thinking is next for yourself? Yeah. So around that time, you know, we had, you know, there were like several like kind of colleges or, or companies that were like recruiting out of the school. Right. And so one of them was a company that uh, did essentially built like kind of enterprise software or like database software for kind of these small two and four year institutions. Right. So this college was actually using the software from this company. Um, and they did kind of recruiting of like new graduates out of this, out of schools where, uh, their customers, right. So like their customers were schools. And so like they would also kind of recruit out of these schools. And so. I had an internship with that company during my senior year. Um, so like between junior and senior year, I worked for them over the summer as an intern, you know, did several different projects. Um, I don't remember exactly what they were at the time, to be honest. Uh, but I worked in like accounting, essentially like the kind of, you know, the, the finance office stuff that you would have at your university where like you go to pay bills and, do things like that um, was where I worked as an intern. But you were doing programming for them or you were doing like yeah. IT? You were doing programming. You were programming the software they were using. Yeah, I was programming the software that they were using. And like, 
they were using some pretty old software uh, to be quite. What was it written in? Old, like, like AS400 mainframe COBOL, or like, right, what were you programming? Well, almost, you know, worse. Uh, so they were using a kind of an old IBM kind of database, which was um, a lot different from what you would consider like a database nowadays, right? Like everybody, you know, SQL and stuff was like kind of all the rage, but this is like kind of predating that almost. Um, so you essentially had like, it was like a database in a programming environment, like all, of, all at once. And so, you know, you're, you don't really have the kind of server client kind of paradigm where you uh, send a query to the server and it sends back a response with data, right? Like you have this kind of environment that you can kind of run, like you run a program or you run this, like a, you kind of connect to it like a terminal and then it will run a program that has like kind of direct access to the database. So like the programming or the ex execution environment or the runtime environment is actually running like with the database on the machine. And you would essentially just like, you could do some kind of types of queries on the database to like be a little bit more efficient, but you were essentially like looping over tables instead of like in a programming language rather than, um, you know, writing something like a SQL query. And so this was written in like what was called Unibasic. So like um, probably only a few people are probably really familiar with what that is, but it's essentially a basic style language that uh, you would write this code in. And then the, the company had a bunch of macros and things like that, that they had on top to make it a little bit more, to make programming a little bit better or easier, but it was pretty, uh, pretty out there. Did you, did you enjoy working on that at all? while you were interning there and, or was this like, was it cool? Cause you had a job and you were doing programming or was it like, I'm kind of curious if you enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, I actually like kind of did enjoy it. It was like, I mean, it was the kind of really early programming, you know, job, right. It was the first job that I ever had. Right. So that was in that sense, like, yeah, I enjoyed it. There was a lot of like the, f I, I, as an intern, like I worked in finance or whatever, and then I actually ended up going and joining the company after that, and then kind of worked in a little bit more of a, like, it kind of, it's not really all that kind of bleeding edge, but like at that company, it was like kind of like a more, uh, one of the more advanced teams that was working on kind of stuff to be able to use like more SQL style tools and SQL style, uh, incorporate a lot more like kind of SQL style models into into the system. Uh, how long were you, how long were you at this company? Let's see, I was there for like from 2003 to 2006. So that was about three years, I suppose. Did, did they, by 2006, get off of that uni basic system or they were still running that in 2006? You don't know. <laughs> no. Are they still even around? <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've, they've, I, there's, they're like, they're not around in the sense that like they're, but they were, they were bought by a competitor, uh, like a larger competitor. So I imagine like the first order of business once they were bought was to like get rid of that, all that, all that stuff and like move over to kind of more modern stuff that the, the competitor was using or that the 
Were you there at the time they got bought? Do you, do you know if the competitor had better tech and they were just buying customers or something? I'm pretty sure the, the I mean, I, I, I know that the competitor had like kind of better tech, I suppose, but yeah, I mean, like better is relative, you know, like neither of them had like particularly good tech, to be honest. Yeah, what, what made you in 2006 decide to move on? What, were you just bored there? Was it done? Did an opportunity fall into your lap? The real like kind of impetus to leave was just kind of like, I was kind of seeing like where my career was going to go. Like, at, so I was starting to think about like a little bit more about like, what do I want to do in the future? Right? Like, where do I want to be in 10 years? Like, um, you know, and the choices were kind of like, I mean, I'm in the DC area, right? So it's like, okay, if I'm going to stay in the DC area, like I'm going to either kind of be working at a place like Datatel, which is this company that I used to work for, uh, for a long time, right? Like, do I want to do that? Well, no. Uh, and, you know, I kind of saw that like a lot of people, like once they got into this kind of like ecosystem of like these tools and stuff like that, like they can't get out essentially. And so they're like, you know, they either work at that company or they work at one of the schools that uses that company's software or, you know, they, you essentially stay in the orbit of that company for like your career. And I didn't really want to do that. Yeah, you saw people that were there for 20 years, right? Like I, I've walked into a couple of companies where like everybody's 15, 20, 25 years. Um, with, is that, that's what you were seeing. That scared me, to be honest with you, when I saw, when I, when I've seen some of that. I think that it was a blessing to leave, right? Like I, I, at the time didn't really have very much experience, like other than that company. So I didn't know what was like what the grass, how greener the grass was on the other side or any of that, you know, but, and, but at the same time, like, you know, looking back, I can see that the people that were there like 20 years or whatever, didn't know either. Like they were kind of like living in the bubble, right? Like, um, so. Yeah, I didn't want to do that. Like, I didn't want to be like doing this for 20 something years or whatever, like, or, you know, quit and go work for some small college out in the middle of nowhere or, you know, so that was, that was one choice, right? Like you could do that or you could kind of like in the DC area, it's, there's like, if you're in tech, it's like government contracting, right? Like there's a lot of money uh, in military that. Military contractors. Yeah, I had a yeah, friend. Sure. There's a lot of money in that. His his whole life was billing, billing at two three hundred dollars an hour, on these government contracts that he could get. It was in PeopleSoft too, by the way. He tried to recruit me to work with him, and I spent two weeks learning PeopleSoft, and my brain went, I don't care how much money's in this. I can't, I can't do this. I can't, I can't do it. I can't uh, keep the money. Yeah, and if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, PeopleSoft was like a data tele competitor back in the day. Um, yeah, one of those ERMs where you build the screens and. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that's the kind of stuff that DataTel did uh, for colleges, right? They were cool systems at the time. There were like three or four of them out there. PeopleSoft being one, where you had everything: accounting, HR modules, uh, this and that, and you build the screens, and the queries behind them would work, and and then you'd write the reports and. We were using PeopleSoft at a company I was at, and dude, I couldn't. My brain, I was, I was so bored. 
I didn't care how much money I was going to make. I, it, yeah, that's exactly the thing. It's like, I didn't want to do that right forever. Like I was, it was boring, like after a while and I wanted to do something else. And, you know, it didn't really appeal to me to like do government contracting either. Like I didn't want to get like a security clearance and, you know, be working for like a military contractor or something like that. Like, you know, even at the time I was kind of like, I'm, even from like an ethical moral standpoint, I'm not like really super up with like working at a military contractor, which is like kind of where I, where most of the people that like left the company that I was working for went to, or the people that I knew in the area that were doing it were like working at military comfort, like contractors like Raytheon and stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, I mean, like, these are the type of people that I'm going to tap for, like, looking for jobs and stuff. And, like, I just don't want to work at these companies. So I had to do something totally different, like, or I had to move somewhere else in the U.S. or I had to move, like, out, out away. Uh, you had to move, right? Like, you were, that, that was the industry that was in that town. There's either you're doing that or you had to move because there's no real remote culture just yet in 2006. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, you're kind of just, like, and, like, I wasn't particularly happy with the D.C. area. I mean, like, D.C. is kind of, like, you know, you got museums and not much else. Uh, so, I mean, I wanted to do something different anyway. And so that that's essentially when I moved to Japan. Uh, See, that's wild, right? It's like, I don't want to be in this area because I want to work for some. I go, we'll go to Japan. Like, you got to, you got to, <laughs> this is a massive let me just put it this way. From my, from, from my experience, there's a lot of people who live in the U.S. who never leave, right? Like this, this idea of even living somewhere outside. Maybe you travel for a week, but to live is really a foreign concept from my experience with people I've met. So it's absolutely mind-blowing that you end up in Japan. You got to tell that story. You got to tell how that, how that happened. Yeah, so that, that kind of started like, you know, because I had a, a roommate in college who was a very kind of interesting character. Um, he was like, he was doing like an international studies major. And, you know, his thing was Japan. And he was like, all into like anime and learning about Japan and, you know, going to Japanese restaurants and doing stuff like that. So like, he was a Japanophile, right. And, you know, that's kind of how he was my introduction to it. And, um, so he like went to study there for a year, right? Like during our junior year. Um, and then he came back after for the senior year. And like, then we kind of roomed together in, a, in the dorm again for our senior year. So I got to hear about like the stuff that he did in Japan and like all of that. And then maybe it was the time that he was gone at school that he like, he had a girlfriend that was Japanese and she came to visit a couple of times. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so like we kind of did that through school. I was mostly focused on like kind of computer science doing my own thing at the time, but like, that was kind of interesting to like, to kind of learn about and be, get, ex you know, experience. And then like after school, like he moved to Japan, like right after college. Right. So he moved here and started teaching English under like this exchange like program. So like there's a thing called the JET program. It's like Japanese exchange and teaching or something. I can't remember. 
but like he went and did that. Uh, and so he was doing that for a number of years. And so right after college, like, you know, I had somebody who was, that I knew was living in Japan. And so I went and visited him a couple of times during the three years that I was working, uh, after college. So you maintained a relationship with him. You maintained a relationship with him even after college. That's, yeah. that's kind of cool. So you got to visit Japan and had that local experience too, because he was, did he speak Japanese while you were in, in university? Like, this is a, like, he really loved the culture. He really, he really wanted to be there. Yeah. So he, he was like, I don't know, like really at the time, like how, you know, proficient he was or anything like I, I still don't really know, but like the, you know, he, he spoke enough Japanese to like, to kind of get by and, you know, certainly he learned a lot more after he moved to Japan, uh, after college. So you went and visited him a few times and, so that's why you had that kind of locked in your head in 2006 when you're thinking about the next sort of move. Yeah, exactly. So like, that was like, that's why there was an option that, that option of like, in terms of a place to move that I thought would be interesting. Like that was, that was an option that I was, that I would consider, I guess, or that I was considering. And that was because of, because of him and because of that experience that I had. So we, at were you also thinking like you had a place to stay at least in the beginning and that you could leverage English in Japan if you were going to work there? Well, that wasn't necessarily like the, the thing at the time, I guess, like, I guess like also during that three years, like kind of in the U S like I kind of ran a kind of local meetup group. So you remember like, uh, meetup.com was like kind of just kind of starting up. So like, we actually had like this meetup on the website that became meetup.com later. Um, and I don't even remember what it was called before it was called meetup.com, but it was like, you know, essentially, you know, like local meetups for people like with a particular uh, interest. Right. And so we had one of these where like we started up and me and a, like one other guy at the beginning, like was there, like who were kind of interested in Japan a little bit and learning the language and kind of learning it on our own a little bit. Um, but eventually like we actually got a lot of folks who were like Japanese kind of folks living in the area in DC and like kind of, or in kind of the DC suburbs of Virginia, I guess. And so that was kind of rare because like, you're not exactly like finding people like Japanese people like left and right, like in the DC area. Right. Like it's, so it was interesting to like, be able to like connect with people that like locally, uh, through that. And so like, that's really kind of what gave me a lot more confidence that that would be like something that I would want to do because like, you know, I, I had a lot of friends who were Japanese that were like living in the U S and had a lot of kind of had learned a lot through them, like about kind of what the culture was like and what the, you know, how people kind of kind of think and um yeah no, that's wild that's that's really interesting that that you ended up with a meetup group that kind of um kind of morphed into that sort of community that you built right so it's almost like everything is pointing towards <laughs> you gotta be in japan so when do you make the final decision like this is what i'm gonna do do you just you decide to go out again and and just 
dip your toe in the waters and see if there's work or you just go heads down. I'm going to do this. Yeah. So we, so I went and started looking for companies or whatever that would, that would hire me. And like the hard part is like finding companies that'll like hire somebody who is, you know, can speak maybe some of the language, but not quite enough that they could like not rely on anybody else to, to kind of translate for them or whatever at least initially and, you know, wanted to hire people and sponsor their visa, essentially. Uh, that was, that was a lot less of a thing back, uh, back when I moved. Um, it's a little bit more of a thing there. There's now there's like a few tech companies here that hire people from outside the country, um, because they want to introduce a lot of like new ideas and things like that. And, so they hire from outside the company, but or from outside the country. But there wasn't a whole lot of it when I moved. Um, that was kind of the most difficult part. But I was fairly lucky to find a company that would that would sponsor me fairly quickly, and I was basically willing to take essentially any job if it wasn't English teaching, because um, that's basically the way that most people come to Japan is like they they start teaching English, and I want to avoid that as much as possible. So you got this, so this was all done, these, did you interview and everything was done over the phone, I guess, or over, over chat at the time? I guess we're 2006, we have chat. Yeah, luckily, like, luckily I did, like, did the interviews kind of over the phone. Um, they were, like, I guess not super discriminatory or, like, discriminating, I suppose is the word. Like, you know, it was the hiring process was fairly easy to get through. Um, it, you know, it turns out like the company was kind of like an interesting little company, like with a very esoteric kind of, uh, what you call in Japan, like the Shacho, like the CEO of the company was like a very kind of outgoing, very different kind of Japanese person. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons why he was like, you know, hiring people who are foreign and doing like kind of, uh, he was kind of doing a lot of like, just, he was just kind of out there. Right. And, uh, that was a really interesting experience, uh, for like a different reason, but like I was able to get that job and like kind of work with that company for a little while, um, and kind of get my feet wet in Japan. So what did you, two, 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 two things before, before, what did your friends and family say when you said, I'm, I'm moving to Japan to live uh, and work yeah. there? <laughs> did they think you were like crazy or they, they thought it was great? Yeah, like funnily enough, I mean, like, you know, I had a couple of friends who were like I was working with at the time. Right. And, you know, at my at that company, right, like doing college software and like when I, when I decided to have to like move to Japan, like he and I talked like my kind of most, my closest friend at the time, like he and I talked or whatever. And basically both of us were going to the meeting to tell each other that we're moving away like, <laughs> at the exact same meeting. So it was like, it was very interesting. Like you too, right? Like, so like he was telling me he's going to go and like start working remote in Charlottesville or whatever in Virginia. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm moving to Tokyo. So <laughs> I guess like, you know, it's all good. Right. But like, that was kind of a little bit of a coincidence. Um, 
But my other friends were basically the folks from the meetup and stuff like that. So they were like, oh, yeah, like, this is a natural thing. Like, my my friends at least were um, really understanding and, like, kind of uh, encouraging along that those lines. You know, like, my parents were kind of like, like, my mom wasn't super happy that I was doing that just because of the distance. Um, but you know, my dad was kind of like, well, I figured that you would move away at some point. Like, so <laughs> maybe didn't expect it to be like all the way to Japan, but you know, I, yeah, that's cool. You know, I guess it might as well be that. So what, what was the job entailing and how long were you at that, at that company in Japan? Yeah. So I was there for two years and that was a very interesting kind of company. Um, it was, it was actually like, a software company that built kind of uh, point of sale type of software and like essentially like their main thing was like making software for for beauty salons right so like big like you know big ish kind of beauty salons so like it was essentially like kind of point of sale software um, and registration software for appointments right so you know, you would like, they would have like a menu, right. Of things that they did. Right. And like, that would be, you know, they would then do all of the point of stale stuff. And like, this would also, the software would also like help you do like your accounting and stuff like that for your, uh, your, your salon. And what was the tech stack? Was this like VB basic that just ran on a PC in the salon with a, I don't know, MySQL database behind it. <laughs> Yeah, so the point of sale system was essentially that, right? Like it was a it was a Visual Basic like application that ran on the machine, um, and then it would essentially backup data, like do data backups to like uh, a remote backup, um, which you could then like fairly easily restore locally. Um, that was like kind of the point of sale system. Um, what I ended up doing was like more of the kind of building out much more of the uh, the online services that they had. So one of the things that they had was a, a mailing list application. So like doing mailing list management. So like what a lot of these salons would do would be like, you go there, you sign up for the mailing list, you get a coupon or something. And then, you know, the salon would send you messages about like other, you know, campaigns they were doing or whatever marketing crap. And then, like, so they would manage these, like these, these lists, um, these mailing lists. And this at the time was like, everybody was like using these like flip phones, like that had email and kind of very rudimentary internet access at the time. Um, and so you could like, people would essentially get these mails on their phone. Right. And so I was working on that software and also on this like kind of new registration system that people could use like by registering from their phone right so they could register for appointments at a particular salon on the phone and then that would tie into the 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 salon right and the salon would have had enough like part of the the vb application that ran in the salon was like this calendar application that would show like the appointments that they had and they could enter appointments in manually through the the calendar or people could like uh register appointments over the phone 
and then like in the salon they could like approve them or whatever that was kind of like the stuff that i did at the time yeah did i mean you don't have a lot of chat right your 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 reading and writing skills right now are not there i'm sure maybe you have a 2500 word vocabulary are they writing this code outside of the keywords that are in english how much of that code base is using the japanese language like are, are you struggling yeah like so like the typical way that you write code in japan is like you generally use alphabetic characters for the code itself right so the identifiers all of that is all written in english and so you'll usually use something like a like a a reasonable english translation of a particular word if you're going to use it uh in in code as an identifier um but most of the comments are written in japanese um so at the time i'm like you know i i started out for the first maybe six months or so like i had another guy in the office who was like kind of a go-between that could that would speak english and also speak japanese and stuff and then you know he ended up leaving the company i think after six months and then after that like you know I had built up enough that I could kind of get by in the office. It wasn't great, but um, I could kind of get by in terms of like communication. Uh, that was a little bit of a difficult time for a while, but yeah, for the, in terms of the code base, it's mostly just outside of the comments. It's almost all in English. Did you end up taking classes to learn at some point? Did you decide to take some classes to learn uh, Japanese or were you just so yeah it's that's an interesting question right like some people learn better in the kind of class environment in my case like i thought it was better to do mostly self-driven study i think that would be more efficient um because i'm kind of working at the time also you know i'm thinking about my kind of tech career and my like you know learning tech as well like i don't need like two large things that i'm doing or, or large things that i'm trying to study at the same time so like, I want to make, you know, each as efficient as possible. So the thing that I would do is very self-driven study and particularly learn and, and, uh, study things that I could use on a daily basis. Right. Like, so I would, as I encountered words, I would add them to like kind of custom dictionaries. And then I would use those in like flashcard programs to, uh, um, to study vocabulary, uh, and yeah, I just continued doing things like meetups also in Japan. So like going out and meeting people and just having drinks and talking and trying to muddle through that, uh, in order to kind of get the experience. Cause like, uh, you know, like learning vocabulary out of a book and actually practicing it, like speaking is a completely different set of skills. Uh, you know, one ties into the other but you know it's kind of like actually speaking like it's a real-time activity so like it's kind of like if you learn baseball out of a book right you can't exactly do that you know you have to have you have to know the feel like when you hit a bat or like when you swing it or you have to know like the ball needs to be about this position before i need to start my swing you know like that kind of thing you can't really get from a book Right. Like you can't just like, 
You know, no, I, I, I get it being in Miami for 25 years. Like, I still don't speak Spanish. My problem, and my wife and uh, her kids will laugh at me, is my hearing is horrific. I will say something, I will repeat what I hear, and they laugh at me, and they go, no, it's this. And I go, that's what I'm saying. And they're like, no, there's this little tone you're missing right here. I go, I don't hear this tone, <laughs> you know? And because I can't hear it, I can't produce it. And it's super frustrating for me. I, it's super frustrating for me. Yeah, I think that this this was like kind of an area where the kind of being a singer or like being somebody who was in a chorus or whatever was like would help me um, because we did a lot of speaking in other languages, right? And even if you're singing in another language or in English, the way that you sing something is a lot different than the way that you would say it, right? Like, so you're, you're pronouncing particular things, like emphasizing certain, you know, vowels, you're shaping your, your mouth in a different way, right? Like, and you receive instruction on how to do that. And so it's kind of that sort of knowledge, you can kind of transfer a little bit over into learning a language and understanding like tones and like how to pronounce things that are not present in your in, in English or in your native language, for example. Yeah, I would, I would really, I, I know already I would struggle. I, I can speak enough food to order and everybody tolerates it. But um, <laughs> yeah. so you, you spent two years at this job. Um, what happens next? Did they, they held, did, I guess they held your visa, right? So you, you needed to find another company that would continue to sponsor you at that point. And then is there a road to citizenship? Do, do you have citizenship there? Are you allowed to have dual citizenship? Was there a road to kind of perm, having permanent, uh, what do they call that? Um, permanency? I mean, well, I'm not sure what the word is. Residency, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So there's, so at the time I was on a work visa, right? So that's, that means that I have to have an employer that's essentially sponsoring the visa, but outside of initially sponsor the initial sponsorship to get to the visa, like the company doesn't really need to do anything, right? Like they just have to be like, okay, yeah, you're employed here. And then I tell them the, the employee or the immigration office that I'm now working at this company, you know, but the, that company doesn't really necessarily have to do anything. Um, it's really kind of the, there's no more money involved. It's not like, it's not like here where you yeah, they don't have to pay the government. Okay. Yeah. So like the initial thing is like when you, when you, when I have to move to, to the, to Japan, like the company that sponsors you have to pay money to the government and, you know, has to wait until your visa is done and, you know, come over and all of that stuff. So they have to be willing to do all of that rigor moral for you. Um, whereas like when you move to the second company, it's a lot easier because you just get a new job and that company, like they hire you like just like anybody else. And you essentially just deal with updating your visa information. Um, so that was, that was fairly easily done. And like Japan's kind of nice in that like they don't, the work visas are not like H1Bs or like some of these temporary visas that you have in the US. So you have, you can renew it essentially definitely if you're working. Um, so you don't have to worry about like, oh, what am I going to do when my, you know, temporary visa runs out? Cause I can only renew it three times or something. Um, so that was kind of nice. Uh, but 
eventually like you know like i kind of settled down and got married and so like after the work visa i transferred over to like a spousal visa which allowed me to essentially do any type of work so there was like some restrictions on the work visa but that didn't happen in the first two that didn't happen in the first two years right so so or did it did you meet you met your wife in the in the in those first two years well yeah so the first two years like i met my wife but like we weren't married at that time right eventually i did move over to that but that was a few years later so what happens that you leave this company now like what's the next what's that next opportunity that you take so so i got kind of interested like in kind of python at the time so that's like how i kind of met a few people that were kind of doing python and learning python and like this is kind of when the kind of early web development in those languages like Ruby and Python was starting to take off, right? Like you started to have like the Rack uh, protocol being developed for Ruby and like the Whiskey protocol being developed for Python and, you know, these type of frameworks starting to be built on top of it. Um, and so that's kind of how I started getting involved in Python because I wasn't really necessarily a Ruby fan, but I really liked the Python. Um, I did a little bit of it in college. And so I wanted to learn more about it and so there was like some communities that I uh, started joining to kind of start connecting with other Python folks and learning about Python. And at this point, like I'm much more kind of proficient at the language. So I'm kind of interacting directly with Japanese folks in Japanese and, you know, talking about programming and stuff like that. Um, that's, that's essentially how I started to like look for a new job because I wanted to start doing stuff in Python and you know, uh, start doing more stuff. So where do you end up? Yeah. Where, what's the, like, what's the job that you end up? I ended up working for a company, like a kind of small company that was doing kind of contract type of work. Um, and we were initially doing work for like, uh, a company called cyber agent, which is like a kind of I would say tech media company, like they do like ads, they have an ads division, they have a bunch of other kind of like media, like online websites and things like that, that they run. Um, and so we were working on a particular website for them for a while. Um, and then, and pretty much the whole company was just working on that one project, right? There was only a few people at the company um, and we were doing all of our work there. And then, like that was like right around 2008, I guess it was like, so like 2009, early 2009 is kind of like, I think that's around the time Lehman shock happened, something like that. And then there was like a bunch of stuff happened. And like, we ended up like going and starting to work on other projects, like the project that we were working on kind of got suspended. And then we went to start, we kind of took off and started working on other projects. Um, but what ended up happening was it was kind of interesting is that like a lot of these companies were starting to come back, cut back. So kind of almost paradoxically, our company like picked up in business quite a lot because like people were trying to look out, look to like farm out development to contract companies like ours. And so we ended up picking up a lot of different types of work at the time. Uh, and, you know, folks didn't, those companies like didn't care whether we used Python or not. Like 
they they were they were happy for us to use Python, and so we were like, yeah, sure, we're going to do it this way, and we're going to hire a bunch of Python engineers that kind of really are passionate about Python and programming, and like that's kind of how the company grew. Uh, and how long how long are you with that company? How long are you with that company? Yeah, I was starting in two thousand eight, and then that uh, we got to the point where we were like, I, I think it was two thousand and. It was early 2015 when I left, so oh, it was about six years. Dude, you were there a long time. Wow. What? Why? Yeah, relatively. What made you? Why do you? What? Why do you think you were there for that long? I mean, it's a long time. Were you constantly challenged? You were just comfortable there. It was. It was a good job. The money they kept giving you, right? Like, what kept you there for six years? I guess like there was like a, a few things. Like it, it kind of was like. Like early on, it was just like that I was kind of learning new stuff, learning Python and stuff. And eventually, like I kind of became comfortable, but like the company started to do like other things, like starting to experiment with building their own kind of services. Um, and so I was part of that, which was kind of interesting to me. That and like, I don't know, there weren't like really a whole lot of jobs that were like really that were like really sticking out to me, I suppose, at the time as being something that like I really wanted to do. You know, I was fairly happy working with Python for a while and working at that company and with the people that I was working with. So we, we're like, we got like 20 minutes left. So I wanna, I wanna get to a few things before we're done. And I'm kind of now curious, you're there for six years. Um, just to jump a little bit, how do you end up at Google in Japan because I guess they have an office out there, right? Because you have to you have to be close to an office. So maybe talk about how you end up at uh, at Google. Is that the next thing in 2015? Or are you still you, you bounce around a little bit before? So so that's like another thing is like as part of like kind of the Python like doing Python stuff. Like there wasn't really like kind of a Python community like that was really kind of gelled and active and doing things in, in Japan at the time. And so we were kind of, you know, a few of us kind of wanted to, you know, there were, there were a few things like that people were doing, like, you know, going out drinking and doing some things like here and there, but there wasn't really like a community that was like doing concrete stuff. And so we decided to like build a conference that would, you know, people could go to and um, kind of try to build a more, kind of grown up community, I suppose, um, around Python. And so we started like the PyCon JP, uh, conference. What year, what year, what year, what year was that, that you did that? So this was like 2011, I think was the first conference that we did. And then we did that for a number of years. Right. And that grew to be still small, but like, you know, on the order of like over a thousand people kind of conference. Dude, that's not small. That, that's not small. <laughs> I don't think that's small. For, for a single language conference, that's, that's really large. Yeah, so, it was, yeah, so it, was, it was actually pretty popular. Like, there was a lot of kind of the, the folks that, that were doing it, like, really wanted to do something, like, that was well kind of put together. So a lot of attention was paid to details and stuff like that. I wasn't really good at that myself, but, um, you know, there were folks that we were working with that were like really 
wanted to make it really nice for folks. Like we would always like make sure that we had like the kind of things that you would expect from a, a properly run conference, right? So like, you know, good keynote speakers, good program, good like food and, you know, things to do at the conference, good sponsors, like all of that. So that, so does this, you, you're, this conference leads to Google knocking on your door? Yeah, partly. So like, that's kind of more of the kind of developer advocate kind of, you know, community style stuff that I was doing. Right. Um, so through that, I met some people that were like working at Google. Um, like I met some folks at PyCon that were in the U S that were working at Google. Um, and then at also like kind of Py in 2008, I think Py like, uh, the app engine was released that was in, that was supported Python in the very beginning. And so that was like a way for a lot of like new Japanese people to like try to learn Python and wanted to learn Python was because they wanted to use App Engine. And so like a lot of people would come into the community and kind of want to learn about Python. And, you know, I knew a lot about that. And I also like started getting involved with doing App Engine. And so like, that's how I started getting into like the Google kind of orbit uh, of people. Um, and then I like got started on this in this like GDE program, which is like what they call GDEs now, which is like Google developer experts. And at the time that was like a program that was like only for Japan and was called something like uh, API experts at the time. So I joined as one of those for App Engine uh, back in probably 2011. Um, and that's kind of how I started going to like things like Google IO and Google conferences and stuff like that. And then eventually like kind of got tapped on the shoulder, said like, Hey, you know, we have an opening for a developer advocate. Like, do you want to do that? Nice. And you've been doing that. Yeah, so, so that's how I kind of got. And that was in 2015 at that point, that's when you joined Google and, you, and you've been there ever since. Mm. How do you keep your, okay. So let, let's get, let's get back to kind of where we started. We got like 15 minutes left and I wanted to talk about this because you, you landed kind of on the security side of things. So, um, right. Cause that's, you, you, you're now focused on security related to containers. You were doing security related to Gvisor, uh, cloud stuff. And this word drives me crazy security. It, I, I don't understand the word. So when, when I say to you, I'm looking for a security engineer, what pops in your head? <laughs> what, do you, what do you think that means when I say I need a security engineer? So there's a couple of types of security kind of engineers, right? Like there's kind of the offensive security engineers, which are kind of more on the, they're going to do things like penetration testing and, you know, the kind of more offensive type of stuff, like where they're going to like try to poke holes in things and find stuff find problems, like specific types of problems. So these are the kind of like red team and like to some degree, blue team type of people that are like looking at specific vulnerabilities, for specific, uh, mitigations. Um, but when I hear security engineer, like, I think more of somebody who is like an engineer that's thinking about the architecture of the system, somebody that's thinking about the threat modeling of the system. So like thinking about the types of threats and like the classes of threats that like can be a potential problem for a particular system and how to mitigate those, like how to change your, your company and like organize your company such that 
security issues don't prop up, crop up, like dealing with policy, like related to how code gets created, like how code gets written and stored, how code gets reviewed, how code gets into your production system. You know, that type of person, I would say, is the type of what you would think of as a security engineer. So they might be doing things like this type of threat modeling of architectures, like new systems that you're building, like they'll do architecture reviews, they'll do uh, threat modeling for systems, they'll do, um, yeah, like reviews when like code, like actual code reviews for, for products as they're coming up, like, and, you know, if they're a security related product. But how did you get into the security side of things once you kind of got into this DevRel? sort of role. I, I imagine they, your, your first, because of your Python background, I imagine that you were focused on Pyth growing Python communities or something when you started. How has how your role kind of morphed from the time you started to now and kind of how did you get into security? So even as I was like changing to Google, I was thinking that like, I was kind of wanting to move away from Python a little bit and start learning kind of Go and kind of other languages and branch out into those languages. And that's partly because I was interested in servers and web servers and web applications and APIs and, you know, essentially backend kind of systems. And Python was really kind of moving in the direction of Python 3 and like less on this like asynchronous application, like backend applications and more on like embedded stuff and a like the machine learning and data processing, like, um, and so I was not really interested in as much in that. And so I wanted to like start moving towards Go. So that's one reason. Um, and then the second was like that I was really just interested in containers. Like I was very interested in, you know, Docker and Kubernetes um, and those as an architecture for deploying applications and running applications, because I thought that was like a very smart way of doing it. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into containers. And then I started going into security specifically, like around containers. And that's how I got into kind of doing security and the security space. Um, and then now like moving into supply chain security uh, and, you know, focusing on that area. Now, what, like a lot of people think that the DevRel position is just, you get on stage and you talk about product and stuff, but I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, it's a lot more than that. So like, where, where are you spending most of your time in this role? Um, at least maybe to say pre COVID and, and, and kind of now, cause I'm sure some of that's changed as well. Yeah. So pre COVID was definitely more traveling and events and things like that. Um, that's for sure. Uh, but the job definitely involves a lot more than just going up and giving talks. Um, you know, certainly some folks focus on that a lot more than others, but it really, there's really like a, a large product kind of feedback or product, uh, improvement kind of aspect to developer advocacy. You're essentially like thinking, you, you know, the idea is that you're, a, you're an advocate for customers, right? So like. The way that incentives kind of work at a company is that like they're going to, the people who are developing the software are incentivized to do it in a way that's going to benefit the company itself, right? Like, and so you're supposed to, <clears throat> at least my, my interpretation of it is that part of that is like bucking that trend and trying to 
take the customer's perspective a lot more and do what's kind of right for them uh, and particularly the technical customers. So developers who are using your platform. I guess the question is, what cloud is kind of really, it, it, is Amazon, is it, is it in Japan? Is, there, is it just really, again, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, or are there local companies too that you're competing against from a, from a cloud that I don't know about because I'm, I'm not there? Yeah, for the most part, it's Amazon, Microsoft, Google are kind of the players now. It was like a little bit less that uh, in the past, but really like the ones in the previously were like kind of hosting services for the most part and didn't really provide much of an API on top of their services, right? The real magic with cloud is that you can have an API and you can say like, hit this API and it'll create a VM for you, right? Like, whereas other clouds, you know, the, the local providers didn't really do that so much. Right. You might be able to click a button on a website, but like there wasn't really any kind of programmatic aspect to it. And so those have mostly fallen out of favor nowadays. And so we're pretty much left with the big three or the three, the, uh, those three. Yeah. Amazing. So this, this move to Japan ended up really being, I think in the end, pretty amazing journey for you. Do you ever see yourself at any point? And maybe you've talked to your wife about it, moving back to the States or this is it, like from what you can see? It's a hard question to answer because like from a career perspective, you know, working at, at someplace like Google or like these kind of like large global companies, like it makes a lot of sense to like just move back to the US, right? Like the pay is is higher in the US, like the all the people that are doing the development, the main people doing the development and the main people doing most of the product work are in the States. Um, and so you have a lot less time zone problems to work with. Um, and you're much closer to like the action, um, as it were. And so it makes a lot of sense moving back. Um, that said from like a personal standpoint, Japan is a really nice place to live. Um, like I have, you know, personal reasons for staying like uh, aside from the, just that it's a nice place to live. Um, and so like in reality, I like kind of prefer to stay here if I can. Um, I'm not really looking forward to moving back to like a large city in the US and doing the whole travel or doing the whole like uh, driving or commuting to work kind of thing. Um, that's public transport is terrible in the US and driving is not much better given like the traffic in a lot of places. Uh, so, you know, if I was going to go back to the U S it would definitely be like kind of more of a remote position, or I would be like not going into the office very often, or, you know, I would have to work out some kind of arrangement where I was not, that I would be happy with. Uh, Does your wife speak English? Does she speak English? Yes. Yeah, so my wife speaks pretty good English. Um, and, she went to school uh, for, I think, seven or eight years here. Uh, so she speaks pretty, pretty good English. Do you speak a lot of English in the house? Like my, my wife is Colombian or she rarely doesn't even have an accent. Like she's amazing. What, what, she learned English. She came to the States like at 22 or something and learned English. One of the few people that have like little to no accent. But when she gets a little riled up, it's all Spanish coming at me. 
because she forgets I don't speak Spanish, right? Which I, I just look and I laugh and I'm like, this is really good. Like, I, I don't, I'm not upset. Yell at me. Go for it. <laughs> I don't know what you're saying. I'm just kind of curious because I have a, a little bit of that dynamic. Um, but we're in the U.S., so English is the main language. So I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, we, we speak English quite often in the house. Like, like I think that I, I speak English a lot more often now that I'm working at Google because most of the work is in English. But um, the, yeah, we speak English in a lot in the house, but like it kind of goes back and forth. And, you know, we're kind of both at the point where like, you know, we don't really, we use both interchangeably. And so it'll, conversations will switch back and forth pretty often. And, you know, that was the other question, the Spanglish. We'll use Japanese words in the middle of English sentences <laughs> and things like that. You know, so. this, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's kind of cool. I guess you help each other too with the language over time. So, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. It helps like. All right. We are out of time. This was, this was really great. I, I, I got to meet you a couple of times when I was in Singapore, I think, um, and India, maybe we were in India. Yeah, we had like Singapore, and I think we were at uh, India. Yeah, in yeah, Korea, yeah. Right, like uh, several years ago. Yeah, like, that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, so that was. I hope we can go back there sometime. So that's why I was. I, I I'm glad we got to. For me, this is like kind of catching up a little bit and getting getting to know your story because you don't meet. I don't meet a lot of people who are living overseas like you are, you know, and and built an entire life there. So. I don't know. I find the story super interesting. I, my family has always heard me say I want to move to Berlin, which you know I haven't done. So, uh, I, I think it's awesome what you did. I think it's it's super cool. Uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you after listening to the show, and we'll put it, put this in the show notes. But uh, what's what's the best way for someone to reach out? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, like at Ian M Lewis, uh, and. Um, that's probably the best way to reach out. Um, my blog and website is ianlewis.org. Um, so you can check out things that I write there and more about me there. Um, but yeah, contacting me would be best done through Twitter. Um, I'm kind of one of those people that still has their DMs open, um, and can manage that. Uh, so at least for the time being, you can DM me, uh, or you can just at me, uh, publicly on Twitter. Nice. Perfect. All right. Thank you again for, for all of this time uh, talking about your story and, and, and what you're doing. This is Bill Kennedy with the Own Lives podcast with Ian Lewis signing off and thanking everybody for joining us and hope to see everybody again real soon.